What's going on, guys? It's JP from the Double Double, and I'm here with my co-host, Ben. What's going on, everybody? Welcome. And this has been a nightmare week of basketball for me. Um, and we're just going to hop right into it. We're going to do a round one breakdown of what's happened so far. The se- Not all the series are finished. Uh, one has finished, but we're just going to hop into Cavs-Knicks right away because I my brain is burning um, with what I have to say. Um, this is pathetic is basically what I'm going to get at here for the next however long. Um, the Cavs are pathetic. Their bench is disgusting. It's I knew it coming into the postseason. We talked about it all season long. The Cavs had one of the worst benches in the league. We knew it, but seeing it in the moment, like literally rips my heart out of my chest. Um, And this is probably the saddest thing I'll I'll ever say on the podcast. I've been super disappointed with Evan Mobley. Um, Defensively, he's been fucking incredible. Like he, he's outplaying Julius Randle. And if you work, if you went into the Knicks series knowing that Evan Mobley is going to outplay Julius Randle, you think the Cavs are going to win in five, right? Not the case at all. Like, Julius Randle's been horrible, but Evan Mobley, other than what he's doing on defense, is virtually a no-show. He is scared shitless of Mitchell Robinson in the paint. And Jared Allen, like, put out an APB on that guy where the fuck is he and what is he doing? I can't see him even when he's on the court. Um, he is pulling a Tobias Harris right now where you know there's five guys on the court, but it seems like there's only four. This has been a masterclass on disgusting basketball um, by the Cleveland Cavs. And, you know, also I do want to give props to the Knicks. This isn't just, you know, the Cavs sucks. I do want to give props to the Knicks. Mitchell Robinson has been incredible. He has grabbed a ton of offensive rebounds. RJ Barrett pulling good basketball out of his ass in the middle of a postseason series is just super confusing to me, especially with the way me and you talk about him. And Jalen Brunson has outplayed Darius Garland and Jalen Brunson's basically matched Mitchell step for step. Um, It's just been a masterclass by the Cavs on how to lose a first round playoff series. So Unfortunately, Jalen Brunson's probably been more consistent than Donovan Mitchell, um, especially given that game three stinker. But it's it's so weird to think about the Cleveland Cavs and where they're at right now. I saw somebody else say this, um, but basically the Cavs put all of their eggs into their front court and their backcourt. They're starting front court and backcourt. And what we've seen in this first round series is Jalen Brunson has outplayed their guards and Mitchell Robinson is out rebounding their bigs. Um, that's where they're struggling the most is with Jalen Brunson and with their rebounding. And that felt like the two things that should have been secure in this series. We knew that the wings are terrible and the wings have been terrible. Um, But you're right, man. Evan Mobley offensively isn't ready yet. Defensively, he's got the second lowest defensive rating of anyone in the playoffs right now that's playing serious minutes. Um, He's been that guy guarding Julius Randle. He's been excellent. But then on the other end, there is no aggression whatsoever. Mitchell Robinson is a great inside presence, um, but he's not that great. Evan Mobley should be going through him and should be going around him for a lot more buckets. Yeah, I agree. And something that's really bothered me is I think Mobley has only taken like six free throws for the series. Um. That just lets you know right away, I'm shying away from any contact and Mitchell Robinson scares me. And that was a great, whoever said that nailed it, right? Like 
the Cavs are all backcourt and all frontcourt, and they put everything into those four players. And then those four guys are being outplayed by the Knicks opposition. Um, the rebounding stuff is killing me. Um, all year long, I've been saying, you know, the Knicks should be a better rebounding team than they are, but it's everyone around the two seven-footers that aren't great rebounders so it makes them worse than they are well now the seven footers are being destroyed on the boards too it's not now it's not the other guys now it's everyone jared allen in game four playing 40 minutes had four rebounds he played 40 minutes as a center and had four rebounds like mitchell robinson isaiah hartenstein josh hart obi toppin these guys are killing them on the boards and you just can't win basketball games if you're being out-rebounded on the offensive glass by 10. That's 10 extra possessions the Knicks got from offensive rebounds. And that's it's just never going to work. Um, and it's just, it's just really, really tough to watch as a Cavs fan because, you know, my head and my heart, my head saw all the weaknesses of the Cavs, but because I'm a fan of the team, I wanted to ignore them. I took the Cavs in seven, um, but this is playing out worse than I either, even could have imagined. I thought the Knicks, like, worst case scenario could win in six. Like, I really think they might take game five. I really do. Like, this could be over tomorrow. Um, I just never saw this as a possibility. Yeah, and it's hard. It's maybe a little bit unfortunate to not talk about all the things the Kings are, or the Knicks, sorry, are doing right but the Cavs really are losing this series. Um, it really, that's what it feels like is happening right now. Jared Allen, the past two games, has been out-rebounded by Donovan Mitchell and Karis LeVert. Um, nine rebounds over the last two games, and he's seven feet tall. Evan Mobley's doing fine on the boards. Even still, there's a lot of moments where he gets out-rebounded. Mitchell Robinson is a freak on the offensive boards, and you just, you can't stop him all the time. But Jared Allen's lack of rebounding, I was a little bit worried about, can this guy get played off the floor in the playoffs? And we might be seeing it, man. And we haven't even talked about the disgusting games that we've seen from Garland and Donovan Mitchell. More so Garland in that game three. A lot of stinkers being put up. Basically, pick a guy on the Cavs, and he's had a terrible game that you can go look at. Yeah, pretty much. Like, the, the five best guys on their team, each of them have had a game where it's pretty disgusting. Um, Evan Mobley was game one, four, 13. Garland was incredible in game two and then just had one of the worst games I've ever seen in game three. Um, Donovan Mitchell, stinky game four, 0 of four from three, five of 18 from the floor. Karis LeVert, 0 of seven in game one. Like these are their best players and this is how they're performing. Um, it's just, it's gross shit. I, it's really gross. And Garland, like, for what he did in game two, where he literally looked like he would be an all-NBA guard the next decade, to do what he did in game three the very next game is, like, you couldn't get a more polar opposite opposite performance. Um, and it's just what really this is making me think is, like, what a huge summer for the Cavs coming up. Yeah. I mean, there's got to be real work. I think J.B. Bickerstaff should absolutely be on the hot seat. I think next year is his last year. And then if he can't figure out how to get past the first round, get him the fuck out of there. Personally, me, with Ime Udoka out on the, you know, head coaching market and same with Nick Nurse, I would honestly, I wouldn't mind giving them offers right now and just calling it ends to the J.B. Bickerstaff experiment because me and you have complained 
more me, but all, both of us, like we've complained about JB Bickerstaff and it's not that he's a bad head coach. It just feels like get Mobley better looks. Why is it so hard for him to get good looks? Like, why is it this complicated or why is there no creativity? It feels like there should be some level of like, you know, they can't stop the Cavs because they have two dynamic offensive players on the court at the same time. And you have like a really interesting glue guy offensively as of right now in his career in Mobley. That's not how it's working. Um, so I don't really know what to feel. All I know is they have a lot of work to do over the summertime and like improve the fringes of their team or else this is just going to be the same story next year. Yeah, and as someone who's not as heavily invested in Cleveland's future and is watching as a, an emotionless outsider, I have had my opinions on where the Cavs should go in the future, and I've talked to you about it. Um, and just to get those opinions out there on the podcast, I think Mobley and Mitchell should be the two that are built around. Darius Garland is an all-star level talent, but you already have a six-foot offensive dynamo on your team. Um, so I think you got to move Garland eventually, and you have to move Jared Allen. And I think we're seeing why in this series. And it's because the lack of offensive creation by anyone large on the team is killing the Cavs. Um, but just for a little bit to talk about the Knicks, yeah. what the Knicks are doing right. Jalen Brunson has been the guy. 24 points a game, five assists, two steals. He has been the best guard on the floor, you know, consistently throughout this series. Julius Randle is shooting 32% from the field. He's shooting 26% from the three-point line. This yes. is playoff Julius Randle, and not to harp on it, but if we went into this series and I told you Julius Randle is going to average under 15 points on 32% field goal percentage, no way are you telling me the Knicks are leading 3-1. to one. No way. But Josh no Hart way. has been incredible, and R.J. Barrett has stepped up in games 3 and 4. Gotta give him credit for what he's done in games 3 and 4. He has been the game changer, honestly. I mean, Mitchell Robinson was making this series way harder than it had to be to begin with. And I think he's probably the most important guy, which sounds silly, but I think it's true. Um, there's not a single easy rebound for the Cavs because of him. But RJ Barrett just randomly putting up 20-point efficient nights has completely demolished the Cavs' chances of winning. If he's going to do that, they don't have a shot to win, even with Julius Randle playing the way he is. But if Mitchell Robinson... R.J. Barrett and Jalen Brunson play the way they're playing. The, the Cavs just don't have a shot. Um, so I I can say I am shocked by R.J. Barrett's performance um, in the last few games. Like, I just didn't see it. And it, he feels like one of those players where when you watch him, he feels so easy to stop because he's so left-hand dependent. He cannot go right to save his life. And he's a poor jump shooter. It kind of just feels like, that's all gone away somehow. Like he's hitting the majority of the threes he's taking and he gets to his left every single time anyway. And it's like, that's, that's just wing defense for you right there. I don't, it, there's not much more. Cause it's not, I mean, no disrespect. I, I don't believe in RJ Barrett as a, as a basketball player. Me and you have talked about this a lot, but if he can keep getting easy looks on the left side of the basket over and over and over again, he's going to do okay. And yeah. it's, yeah, it's just been really impressive by New York to get him those looks. And like Jalen Brunson, you know, does he deserve all NBA consideration? Like, is he just one of those guys where the guard position is so stacked that he won't get named? But he's like clearly an unbelievable table setter and number one option. And like, he's just so fucking good. 
I I'm loving what I'm seeing from Jalen Brunson. I wouldn't have thought he could be the guy basically single-handedly leading the Knicks through this first round series. Barrett's done his thing. Randall's had some moments. Robinson's had some moments, but it has been Jalen Brunson calm, cool, collected in all four games. Um, I didn't see that coming, but I love it from him. And I think it really means good things for the Knicks going forward. Uh, but Josh Hart, just a harp on Josh Hart again, shooting 60% from the field, 56% from the three-point line, averaging 14 points and seven rebounds as a guard. Uh, they're the only two guys on the Cavs that are out-rebounding. Uh, Josh Hart are Mobley and Allen, and Mobley is re- out-rebounding him by three. Allen's out-rebounding him by one. Yeah, Josh Hart is six foot four and pulling down seven rebounds a game. We talk about it all the time, but you can't find better role players in the NBA than Josh Hart. And I just think if you are a team trying to get over the hump and Josh Hart makes it onto the open market this year, which I doubt he will because the Knicks have a really good amount of cap space and he's they have his bird rights. So I doubt he goes anywhere. But if you really need a, a role player to push you over the top, like I don't know if there's a better guy. Than Josh Hart. It's like Josh Hart and Derek White are the two best role players in the league to me. Yeah. Um, and he provides defense, three-point shooting, and rebounding. And is there anything you want more than those three attributes from a role player? Like he is the epitome of an unbelievable role player. And I'm just I'm just bummed that I have to face him, especially with the team like the Cavs who are struggling rebounding the ball to begin with. Then you have Mitchell Robinson and Josh Hart tracking down every loose. It's like, yes. it's impossible. It's impossible. Because a guy like Karis LeVert is not boxing out Josh Hart. He oh. needs to be. But that's how Josh Hart gets all his boards is because yeah. he knows if Garland's guarding me, if LeVert's guarding me, I've got a lane to the basket. And he just runs and jumps and get puts himself 40 inches into the air and grabs rebounds. Um, You got to love Josh Hart's energy going forward. Just wrapping up this series. Yeah. My faith in the Cavs is gone. The three, one comeback is not a thing I'm a believer in. Maybe they take game five. Um, But from what I've, from what we've seen in games three and four, the vibes not looking very confident in Cleveland. Do you think there's a good chance that this is a five game series? It's either Knicks and five or Knicks and six. Um, I think Donovan Mitchell's not going to let it go in five. I think they'll force it to six, but the Knicks, this is their series. Um, and honestly, like this would be a catastrophic series loss if the Knicks found out how to lose this because the Cavs look dead in the water. Mm-hmm. I mean, the one game they won was one of those weird outlier games where they just pounded the shit out of the Knicks. Um, and Darius Garland had a virtuoso performance. Like everything else has been all Knicks. I think it's Knicks and six, um, you know, unless we see a miracle Mobley game, honestly, that's the one thing that could swing the series is if he becomes like a competent offensive player, but I just don't see it happening with Mitchell Robinson doing what he's been doing. I don't see it either. And you gotta, we all gotta just take a breath. This is the first time the Cavs have been in the playoffs. It is the first time this Knicks team has been in the playoffs. Um, well, but the Hawks. The Hawks yeah, yeah. Series. Yeah. But yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but this is Mobley's first playoff outing. Yeah. So if things are going to be rough here, that's okay. These things happen. They were going to lose in the second round anyways. This is obviously disappointing, not what we wanted to see from the Cavs. But going forward, it isn't the end of the world. The one thing moving forward, we know the defense from Mobley translates beautifully to the playoffs. Absolutely. That, that's one absolute positive we can take away from this is 
his defense travels. He's not Rudy Gobert where, you know, he's great in the regular season and then who fucking cares in the postseason? Like, Mobley is dominating games on defense. I know the Knicks are up 3-1, but the Cavs' defense has been great. It's just their offense has been maybe one of the worst I've ever seen. Like, yes. the Knicks, 102 they scored um, in, what, Sunday's game? 99 in the game before that. Um, 90 in the game. You know what I'm saying? Like, these are just over 100 or 90. Like, that is an unbelievable defensive performance from this team. It's just, we knew the defense was going to be good all year. It was the fucking offense we were worried about. And that's what I was talking about on TikTok just before we hopped on the podcast here with Mobley. The last 40 games of the season, he was averaging 18, 9, and 4 and looked really, really good and was exploring his offense. And it looked pretty comfortable for him. That has been taken away completely. He has reverted back to the first 40 games of the season, Evan Mobley, where He's shy. He's not taking the shots. He's deferring to the guards. He's not even looking at the basket. You know, like I said, if they if they have a chance, it's because he reverts back to the guy he was in the last half of the regular season. But I, I really just don't see that happening. So throughout um, the regular season, the Cavs were the ninth best offense in basketball. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I I don't think anybody expected them to be one of the best offenses in the playoffs. There's differences there. Jared Allen, we've seen his use has been shrunk pretty considerably. Evan Mobley shrunk pretty considerably. Um, But obviously 79 points in a playoff game, not something I could have expected to be 32 to 43 at fucking halftime. Good Lord. That is some garbage hoops. Yeah. And just before we move on, if you were to take a team's future, out of these two teams, the next five years, who would you choose? The Cavs with zero picks, but you have Mobley, M- Mitchell, Garland, and Allen, or go Knicks who have all of their picks with Randall, Brunson, Barrett, and Hart. I mean, I think the Knicks might be looking pretty good right now. Um, RJ Barrett and Julius Randall are not guys I want to tie my wagon to. Um, I think that's probably what it comes down to. And Evan Mobley's a guy I can be a much bigger believer in, but there's a, definitely an argument to be made on both ends. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. So uh, we'll get off my shit calves now, and we'll talk about a team that's been really impressing, the Boston Celtics, baby. Your hometown Seas, they're crushing the Hawks. What have you? What have been your thoughts on the Seas so far? The Celtics are cruising, comfortably cruising to a 3-1 lead. Uh, it could have been a sweep, but they did not play very hard in game three. And to their credit, Murray and Trey Young were excellent out of the pick and roll. Really, really excellent. And their role players played a lot better. Um, But this hasn't been a competitive series. Uh, The Celtics are playing, from my estimation, at like 90% effort still. Um, Still just kind of dogging it. You know, once they get that 10, 12-point lead, they just slow it down, slow the pace down incredibly. But we're seeing exactly what we expected from Jason Tatum. 29 points a game, 10 boards, 4 assists. We're seeing great play from Jalen Brown. Al Horford's had his moments. Derek White has had some big moments. Um, this is, in my eye, the deepest team in the league. I've been saying it all year. Um, and you can see just the levels of shot creation. Bring up Malcolm Brogdon off the bench. He's generating looks for people. Derek White's generating looks for people. Brown and Tatum are doing it a little bit. Al Horford's at a great passer at the big man spot. Um, yeah. The way the offense swings, it's just not something Atlanta can keep up with. No, and I, I do want to give a little bit of credit to Atlanta. In game four, they kept it close, and then Jalen Brown was – pretty pretty special um but you know the Celtics we we've mentioned this all year they're super deep and Derek White 
who I've talked about in the last few weeks, is the best role player in the league. And then you just have the guy who won six man of the year coming off your bench. Uh, this team is stacked from top to bottom. And you mentioned it. The way they move the ball is just kind of impossible to, to stop. Um, and now we're seeing, like, they can use either lineup. They can do Al Horford by himself with, you know, Derek White, Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, or they can do the two big lineup. And either one just crushes anyone they face. Um, the Celtics team is cruising, um, and I think I think they deservedly earned the right to be the title favorites. Um, you know, we're seeing kind of Milwaukee play with their food a little bit. Yes, Giannis has been hurt, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But, you know, the Celtics are really kind of withstanding some punches here. Trey Young did not back down in game four. Like, we do need to give him some credit because after game two, me and you were texting each other, literally laughing at how bad he was. Um, 35 points with 15 assists to one turnover. Like, that is about as good as you can get on offense. It really, like, you can't do much better than that. Um, and DeJounte, uh, excuse me, DeAndre Hunter had a hell of a game, 27 points. DeJounte Murray, 23 points on efficient shooting. And the Celtics could just withstand it. And that's what makes that team so special. Yeah, man. Look at the seven-man lineup. I'm going to go through the seven guys playing the most minutes right now. All of them are competent passers. There's a couple that you're eh about. Jalen Brown's eh. But Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Al Horford, Derek White, Marcus Smart, Rob Williams, Malcolm Brogdon. All of those guys know how to find a teammate. They know how to give up a good look for a great look. And that's what we see. Uh, Rob Williams is coming off the bench and is comfortable and is getting so many rebounds, 14 and 15 or 13 and 15 yesterday. Um, he had a hell of a game. They're really just, this was never going to be a competitive series. Shout out to Trey Young for doing what he did in games three and four, because the first two games, he looked like a toddler. He looked like you threw a JV player out onto a varsity court. Um yeah. The Celtics picked on him every single time down the floor, and then they would try to run pick and rolls to try to get Sam Hauser onto Trey Young, and it just never worked. Um, yeah. But Atlanta Trey Young has been different. It doesn't really matter because the Hawks were always going to lose this series, but to take a game, I think, is something they should be proud of. Yeah, for sure. I, I do respect the resiliency from Trey Young, and I think seeing what he's done in games three and game four, it boosts our opinion of him a little bit, right? Because they were starting to have, be conversations of like, you know, would you rather have Derek White or Trey Young moving forward? You know, that type of stuff. And, you know, it was warranted after game two. Like Derek White was punking his ass. Yeah. But we can, we've been able to see what Trey can do when he's really on. And he is a special offensive player. We've been over his, you know, bad things a lot on this podcast. We're not necessarily Trey Young fans, but. Um, I texted you at the end of game two and I said, Trey Young should not be a part of the Hawks future. Um, yeah. And I think it's hard to build around a five foot 11 guy who's as bad of a defender as Trey Young, but you have to be able to acknowledge that the way he runs the high pick and roll, which is playoff offense, man, that's what happens in playoff offense. The way he runs the high pick and roll is special and he's really, really good at it. I think you can make an argument. He might be the best at it, which One sounds, of them. like, I think you could make the argument. He's the best at it. Seriously. The way he throws lobs, finds shooters, and does the floater game. Like, it, you know, it's really fucking hard to stop when he's going. Um, but we've seen, you know, Marcus Smart had a great quote. Like, he believes that they have the best trio of guard defenders in the league. And honestly, I agree. Between him, White, and Brogdon just switching, taking turns, it's it's impossible to get a good matchup. But Trey has done a decent job um, 
you know, maneuvering in game three and four. But yeah, let's talk more about the Celtics because they deserve it. Like, it do- I don't know how much more we have to say about them because I feel like we have been echoing the same point for a very, very long time about them is their three-point shooting, their depth, and their team defense are just fucking impossible to stop. And it kind of just feels like that's who they are as a unit. They're kind of the San Antonio Spurs to me of old where they just have team principle and all of their wins look the same because they play a winning formula and they've perfected it. Um, There's nothing like new and exciting about the Celtics to me. It's just plain old, old fashioned. We're going to beat the shit out of you. Um, And I I project that moving forward as well, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah. It's Spurs-esque in the sense that our offense is so much above, so much higher than the team we're playing. Um, And so even when Trey Young comes down and bombs a 32 foot three, he puts them, you know, now it's an eight-point game instead of an 11-point game. Um, the Celtics' offense has just been beautiful. 20 points a game out of Derek White has been awesome. You go down the list and you look at the three-point shooters. Jason Tatum, 40%. Round 39. Derek White, 52. Marcus Smart, 40. Um, what else? Al Horford, 38. We've been shooting perfectly. Um, game three was the first time this year the Celtics have shot 43% from three and lost. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting stat. But even so, man, they, they were doing fine offensively. The Celtics haven't struggled. They haven't missed a beat offensively. Um, sometimes the clutch time buckets are bad. And we've kind of known that that's the Celtics' weak spot is when there's eight seconds left on a shot clock, the shots that they generate are not their best. Yeah. Um, but even so, man, just the way the offense moves, the way the defense moves, this is such a beautifully built basketball team. Um, it's just like, if you're trying to think of in your head, how do you build a championship team? You put seven guys out there that are competent offensive and defensive players who just don't make mistakes. It's so fun to watch. I don't know what it's like if you're not a Boston Celtics fan, but just coming into these games, watching beautiful basketball, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about this tweet. I saw that really, I thought was interesting and I'd love to get your take on it. Ryan Rossillo from the ringer. He tweeted, how many players would you take before taking Brad Stevens as your GM moving forward? And it actually made me question like how valuable he is to the Celtics, right? Because what he has done since taking over as GM slash president has been virtually perfect. Um, he trades literal trash, garbage, Kemba Walker, arthritic knees Kemba Walker, for Al Horford, who led the league in three-point shooting and is one of the most switchable defenders in the entire league. And then he trades baked beans and Aaron Neesmith for sixth man of the year, Malcolm Brogdon. Um, He also didn't give Grant Williams $20 million a year in the summertime. And Grant Williams has completely played himself down a salary tier over this year. And the Celtics will be able to keep him for cheap if they so choose Every single thing he has done has been fucking perfect. And that level of stability up top has made us forgot about the drama that happened last summer. Like yeah. we just don't even talk about it because they're such a unit. They're so perfectly built. Um, I think, you know, everyone I've been over this a hundred million times. Like everyone loves to give Sam Presti the credit, right? Oh, he's a genius, whatever. I don't fucking care. Give me Brad Stevens every single day. Um, he has proven that he can make a team good to great to elite um, as a coach, president, GM, whatever it is. If he's involved, there's greatness. Yeah. And there's two more big ones you forgot about. Derek White was acquired for Romeo Langford and a pick swap. 
Um, and Sam Hauser was signed to a three-year, $5 million deal, and he's one of yes. the best shooting role players out there. Yes. Um, maybe not one of the best, but he's excellent. At $5 million, $5.5 million, you can't get better value. And I'm just saying, like, from my point of view as a team who's not, who's a fan of a team that's not the Boston Celtics, I would trade my right arm for Sam Hauser right now. <laughs> Seriously. Like, he's just finding him off the scrap heap and getting him for less than $2 million a year in a league where a decent role player makes $22 million a year. It's just, it's literal perfection. And I thought that was such an interesting question on how many actual players that get to play the game would you take in front of GM Brad Stevens? And it was hard for me. I couldn't come up with an answer, but I know that it's a shorter list than I'd probably thought it was. It is really wild to see the moves that Stevens has made to take the team that was a great team that was going to make playoffs every year and turn them into, we are the champions. We are the favorites uh, in the past two seasons. It's it's a great, great move, and I'm so excited for round two. I think we'll get to round two after we talk about the Sixers, so let's just pivot right to the Sixers. Yep. 4-0 sweep. Um, this was a weird sweep because a lot of these games did not seem like great Philly games. Uh, Joel Embiid had 14 points in one of the games. Um, Tyrese Maxey's done his thing, and he's been excellent. But James Harden disappeared in a game. This was a strange 4-0 sweep, but I think it just speaks to the difference in talent between the 76ers and the Nets. This was always going to be an uncompetitive series, and it's because the Sixers were just... The Nets just didn't have that guy. They didn't have a guy on the level of Joel Embiid or even James Harden. I will say, James Harden has been horrible, um, but it didn't matter. I spoke to you about this pre postseason. Um, I just think the nets are Mikhail bridges and a bunch of guys. And when you're facing a team that was elite all regular season long, and you know, they have a top five guy on their team and Joel, it it's not a competition. Um, these games were super ugly. Um, not really entertaining basketball, pretty, pretty tough watch, but I think it's great for Philly that they swept because they need the rest because Joel actually could not play game four because of some soreness or an unknown injury up to this point. We don't know what it is, um, but he needed to, he needs the rest. Um, and if you're facing the Boston Celtics, which we just gave a ton of credit to deservedly. So he's going to need to be fresh for that series. Um, James Harden, another classic James Harden postseason series where he's fucking horrible um Tyrese Maxey bailed the Sixers out like he's been fantastic um he deserves a big time extension come the summertime uh this is an interesting team man and moving forward something that I'm just curious about is PJ Tucker um he you spoke to me about this in the regular season and it kind of I didn't really consider it you mentioned how he basically scores zero points every single game um and when I was thinking about matchups moving forward, and we're not going to do second round yet, I'm just curious how P.J. Tucker can stay on the floor and contribute without being taken advantage of. Because the doubles on Joel Embiid all series long from the Brooklyn Nets, you could just run off of P.J. Tucker and double Joel and not really have to worry. Um, if you're an even more skilled team like the Celtics, or God forbid the Sixers beat the Celtics and go on to the Bucks, like, that shit's not going to fly. It's just not going to fly. So I'm um, very, very curious on just how PJ Tucker's used moving forward. 
I don't see how the Sixers win the series against the Celtics. The way that I've watched the Sixers and the Celtics, Joel Embiid, I'm I'm liking that this is something that people are talking about a little more. Of the last eight playoff series that Joel Embiid has played in, including this last sweep, he's had more turnovers than assists in seven of them. Yeah. Um, the double teams work, man. The double teams have always worked. Joel Embiid has taken massive strides in terms of the ability to pass out of those double teams, but he's still not great at it. Um this is something that the Boston Celtics are going to be able to exploit. It sucks that he got hurt. Um, and I hope that that knee trouble is better against the Celtics. I want to see him healthy, but he was hobbling in game three. He looked hurt from, you know, halfway through the second quarter. Um, I don't want to see that in the playoffs, but I just, I don't know how the Sixers could possibly beat the Celtics. Joel Embiid could be the healthiest he's ever been. I'm taking Celtics in five over the Sixers. Um, I think the Celtics are a legitimate nightmare matchup for the Sixers. James Harden is going to shit himself so badly in that series, and I'm going to love every second of it. Derek White, Marcus Smart, Malcolm Brogdon hounding one of the biggest playoff chokers in NBA history is going to be a delight for me to watch. Um, I hate the Sixers as a team. I just don't like how they're constructed. I'm I, I just dislike James Harden and what he does in the postseason every single year. Um, he's just the epitome of fool's gold. Um, but, you know, we're not getting into second round yet, but a good, good win for the Sixers, I guess. And for the Nets, because I do want to touch on them. I think what they figured out is they do have a number one option moving forward. Mikhail Bridges is a good enough player where if you put the right pieces around him, he can make you a fifth seed moving forward. Like he, you can just be the fifth seed moving forward if you add competent talent around them. Personally, I don't think they're there yet. I think they have some pretty important moves they need to make before they reach that. But, you know, he's a very good player. And, you know, if, it, if it, he didn't run out of gas near the end, he was putting up like 20, 25 points a game on pretty efficient shooting. And then he kind of tailed off, but... He's a great defender, good shooter. Like, you know, I don't know. I, I really like him as a player. So they know they have a good player moving forward. Yeah, I don't know what his ceiling is, but it feels like next season he'll be putting up 26 a game, like yeah. pretty comfortable. Uh, he put up 24 a game in this series on 40% three-point shooting. Not excellent from the field, but really good three-point shooting. I love Cam Johnson as a role player. I love Nick Claxton as a switchable big there are clear pieces here that if the Nets can just add an A minus or a couple B plus guys, like they're staying in the playoff race and they'll be a team that people do not want to fight. Um, I Seth Curry didn't have an excellent series. There's a bunch of guys you can look at here that you kind of just wanted more from, but they didn't step up. But that's this Nets team, man. This isn't some deep playoff team full of experienced vets or whatever. This was just like a bunch of guys who made it to the playoffs. Um, they got to be happy that they were the five seed in general. Um, they put up a great fight, but are the six seed. Sorry. They put up a great fight, but this was always going to be a sweep. Yeah. Let's move on to Milwaukee, Miami. This series has been really fucking weird. Um, Giannis got hurt in game one. He played 11 minutes. He, they got crushed in game one after he went out. Then Milwaukee comes back and dominates in game two. And then Miami destroys them in game three. Um, this has been a really weird series and I don't really know what to take away from this. Miami has scored the most points they've ever fucking scored in these last three games. 121, 122, 130. 
this is a team that struggled to put up 90 points against the Hawks in the play-in. Um, this just lets me know exactly what I thought previously. Giannis is the best defender on this team. It's not Brooke Lopez. Like, it, it's ridiculous to think that. And Giannis, once he comes back, this series will be over quickly, in my estimation. Um, this is a bunch of fool's gold to me. For people that actually think that, you know, Miami's going to put up a fight are ridiculous. Like, we'll see it later tonight. The game airs at uh, 7.30 Eastern. Giannis on this team completely changes the series, and this will be over quickly. I'm not worried about it. I'm surprised that they've put up two wins. Miami's won two games. We saw yeah. great Duncan Robinson minutes. He's back. 23 great Duncan Robinson minutes, guys. Uh, I haven't seen that in years, in maybe two and a half years. Um, Victor Oladipo going down with the injury, the non-contact injury, is fucking tragic, man, just because he just can't escape that. Um, I loved the guy he was in Indiana. We're never going to see that version of him again, and it sucks just watching injury after injury with him. But the fact that they won two games at all, Jimmy Butler is that guy when the playoffs start, man. There's not many guys that you want to, you know, tie your bandwagon to more so than Jimmy Butler. 30 points in game three. He's been excellent so far. Uh, but you're right. As soon as Giannis comes back, the Bucks are winning every single game. I want to read off Jimmy's stats quickly because you're right. He's just that guy when it comes postseason time. He's averaging 30 points on 60% from the floor. <laughs> 66% from three, obviously only on three attempts a game, but he's hitting two out of every three. Yeah. Uh, he's averaging four rebounds, six assists, and two and a half steals per game as well. <laughs> it's about as good as you can get. Um, yeah. He's always going to turn up in the postseason. I I'm glad to see him performing well. I'm always rooting for Jimmy just because he's one of those like grinders. Um, but yeah, I mean, this has been a weird one and it hasn't really been super entertaining for me either because for me, we have different opinions on this. Like, I think Milwaukee should lose to Miami if they don't have Giannis. You think, you know, Milwaukee should still be able to put up fights, get wins without him. But for me, I haven't really been interested in this series very much. Um, I'll definitely be watching tonight. But it, to me, it screams red flag when the 30th ranked offense in the league is scoring 130 points per game. I think that goes away when the best player in the league comes back. So it'll be fun to watch tonight. And, you know, we'll get back to you guys in a few days when the series is over. Yeah, the things to watch out for if you're looking at the Bucks and trying to project forward. What's up with Drew Holiday as an offense, as a scorer? Um, so far, he's putting up 10 assists to three turnovers, which is phenomenal. And he's been great as a table setter, truly. But 32% from three, again, is drew holiday shrinking his shot making ability shrinking when the playoffs start yeah. um, against miami i didn't expect this much of an issue they do have a lot of high energy guard defenders but drew holiday should be able to hold his own against them um chris middleton had a great game but overall i mean 24 points on 52 percent from the field is great yeah. i just feel like these guys should be talented enough to pick up wins against the heat and at least they should be talented enough to not let up 124 points a game so far through three games yeah i that's kind of where i'm just like brooke lopez is a you know he's a drop coverage guy and that's all he does it's very similar to what rudy gobert did in utah and we saw similar results where the mavericks were putting up crazy numbers on utah and it's because the drop coverage, if you know it's coming, you can plan around it. Yeah. And that's just what we've seen. Um, Drew Holiday, unbelievable guard defender, the best in the league in my estimation. 
you think maybe he can check Jimmy Butler a little bit, but Jimmy's just that guy. When Giannis comes back into the fold and you have a 6'11", shot eraser, perimeter defender, he he answers all problems, right? Um, yes. But something just, like you said, projecting forward, Chris Middleton's back, man. He's back. 33 points in game one, 16 points in game two on decent shooting with seven assists to one turnover. And then in game three, 23 points on above 50-point shooting, uh, 60% from free throw land. I mean, three-point land, like... He's back. He's back to what he used to be. And this means a lot to this team who last year we saw when they had to rely on Drew Holiday, he proved us wrong. He proved us wrong by sucking ass. And he's doing it again. He, I had faith in him and he's sucking ass again. So uh, we'll see moving forward. This is going to be, I'm just really excited for Milwaukee Knicks because I think that's just going to be a dogfight. Punches are going to be thrown. It's going to be basically just a UFC match instead of a basketball series. I'm so excited for that series. Uh, I hope Giannis can just play the rest of this series. I don't know what level he's at coming back to game four. I hope it's enough that we're not going to have injury concerns moving forward because that just sucks every time it sucks. Um, but when you're talking about Brooke Lopez and drop coverage, Jimmy Butler is the guy that erases that. If you're giving Jimmy Butler mid-range looks with Brooke Lopez just camping out in the paint over yep. and over again, you're not going to succeed. That's not a winning strategy. Right. And when we project forward talking about Eastern conference finals, I think the Celtics have added some guys and I'm, I'm just, you know, saying if the Celtics make it that far, a guy like Brogdon, Tatum, Brown, Derek white, those are all guys who can live in the mid range. Um, so M Malcolm Brogdon more so than any others, but yeah. the, the drop coverage with Brooke Lopez, it's easy to exploit regardless of how much impact you may have in the regular season. The playoffs are a different animal entirely. Yeah. So let's move on to the West and uh, let's just hit all the series. Denver, Minnesota, you're an absolute massive Jokic fan. You've been for years. You're actually wearing a Nuggets hat as we do our podcast right now. Oh, yeah. The Nuggets have looked really, really good. Uh, Jokic, other than game one, has been fantastic. Um, what are your thoughts on this series so far? Props to Anthony Edwards for not making this a sweep. Anthony yeah. Edwards will be the best shooting guard in basketball one day. Very soon. Yeah, very soon. He will be a top 10 player in the NBA very soon. He'll be making all NBA teams. Man's a killer. And if the Minnesota Timberwolves have not figured out that he should be their number one guy moving forward, I don't know what's going on in Minnesota. Um, he's just been excellent. But on the Denver Nuggets side, this has been just a pretty comfortable routing. Um, there have been some moments. Game three had some moments that were pretty close. Uh, game four could have been a blowout if the guys were hitting shots in the first half. Nikola Jokic could have had seven more assists uh, in that game, but this was never a series I was that worried about. Um, I'm loving what I'm seeing from Nikola Jokic. 43 points last night was great, but overall, man, I don't know how much I can really take away from this series moving forward, just because this is exactly what I expected. Totally with you. Uh, we both thought this was going to be a quick one. I thought maybe if Minnesota was healthy, they could even take the series. I think that's a little foolish now looking at just how Jokic is doing what he's doing. Jokic, 26 points on 57% from the floor and 57% from three to go along with 11 rebounds and eight assists. Offensive masterclass. He has been fouling a lot. It's not an issue. It really isn't. They're fucking destroying the Timberwolves. It doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like we knew this was a skewed matchup. This isn't super surprising. It is a little bit tough to gain info on either team. One thing I have noticed is just 
you know, we knew this was coming with the Nuggets to their bench, right? Every time Jokic is out of game, teams roar back. And Minnesota has made a, a habit of that is they go for the kill once Jokic is on the bench. The thing is, though, is Jokic is playing 35 minutes. So, you know, he's out there a lot, but when he sits, they they tend to roar back. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. I'm not really worried about it. Maybe moving forward when they face a more skilled team, we'll, we'll have to have these discussions. But can I just talk about Anthony Edwards for a second? Of course. He is the premier young player in the league. I, I, I mean, last year at the age of 20, he was the best player in a playoff series his first time being in the postseason. He was better than John Morant, and he was better than Desmond Bain, and he was the best player in that series. They just happened to lose. And then this year, he's averaging 32 points per game on 48% from the floor and 40% from three. It's just stupid shit. He's averaging 4.5 stocks a game as well. Like, it's a two-way impact. It's not just him getting buckets. This guy, he really, what sucks is, like, I think Minnesota's in a strange situation moving forward just with the Rudy Gobert trade. It's like, how do you recoup or, like, how do you move forwards? But, like, as long as you have that guy, you feel very fucking good about your future. Like, he just feels like the next, you know, Tatum or, like, just certified I'm a dog in the league. We've been on this guy, you more so than me, man. Even in that rookie year, that first half of his rookie season, where it was just awful performance after awful performance, you were telling me this kid's are going to be amazing. Yeah. We started to see moments. Um, I'm so happy that we're seeing this come to fruition because we've been talking about it forever. Anthony yep. Edwards, I saw the other day, uh, he's got the most 30 point games in a playoff in the playoffs for a guy under 22. And he was asked about it and he said, who cares, man? I want to win. I don't care how many points I'm putting up. I want to win. And I believe it. I I believe him, man. He is an absolute winner. He is such a winner. I love watching him play basketball. If the Minnesota Timberwolves didn't make the worst trade in the history of the NBA, arguably, um, who knows where they'd be right now, man? The injuries suck and this was always going to be a loss for them. But just as a team, as a unit, there would be a lot more excitement in the building, I feel like, if they didn't squander their future with that Rudy Gobert trade. Completely agree. And I also think it's really time to start looking at Carl Towns' trades. Um, you know, he doesn't fit next to Gobert to begin with, right? But just as a postseason player, he has shown us over and over again, he can't cut it. Right now, he is averaging 16 points, and he's shooting 43% from the floor as someone who's seven foot tall and 27% from three. It's fucking disgusting. Jokic is eating his lunch defensively, right? The cat stands no chance. Um, and I mentioned it after game one. Like, cat has the perfect body to defend Jokic. It's just the IQ, footwork, you, you know, defensive intelligence, all of it is just not there. But I do believe there will be a team that would want to trade for him and give you picks. And I think you have to do it. Um, it's Edwards' team. It's time to like just fill in the team around Edwards and just gear it towards his strengths rather than trying to make like balance Carl Towns and Anthony Edwards. Just get rid of the Carl Towns issue and move forward with Edwards. I have been historically low on Carl Anthony Towns yep. throughout the years. I've been pushing the cat trade since the Go Bear trade happened. Um, to think 
if there's a single team out of 30, out of 29 in the NBA that calls you up and says, I want to pay for Carl Anthony Towns uh, in 2027, I want to give him $61 million in 2027, 2028, you trade him immediately. You trade yeah. him the second that phone call starts. Um, I don't know what team in the NBA thinks, fuck, man, I really want that guy. That's the there's guy that will make a difference. Um, but as soon as you get that call, you trade him. I don't know what kind of value you can even get back for Carl Anthony Towns the way that he's been playing. Yeah. Um, because that contract, holy, holy crap, what yeah. a bad contract. But you've got to know either Rudy Gobert or Carl Anthony Towns has to go immediately. Um, yeah. You can't have two seven-footers, slow seven-footers on the floor anymore. I think – you could expect a package a little bit greater than what DeJounte Murray fetched, which was three first round picks unprotected. I think Carl Anthony Towns, because he's made all multiple all NBA teams and we cannot deny, like he is one of the greatest offensive players in the league in the regular season in the right. True, true. But some team is going to say we can unlock him. We see the talent. We see the vision. Mm. And for a team with a plethora of picks like OKC, where you literally just have extra picks and you're desperate for a big guy and shooting, you're like, fuck it. I can I can give away four picks. It's not that big of a deal. Um, and they're not paying anyone either. So, like, there's going to be a team that talks themselves into it. And I think if you're Minnesota, you just need to accept it immediately, like you were saying, right? Yeah. The team belongs to Anthony Edwards. Moving forward, if you can gear – the construction of the roster around him, I think good things will happen. Um, so yeah, weird, weird team. I feel awesome about Anthony Edwards moving forward. Like you said, he will be the best shooting guard at some point, And I think it's sooner rather than later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just this series is over though. Carl Anthony Towns to OKC. I think you just talked me into that as I'm thinking about it. You put him next to Chet Holmgren. Maybe that is the exact type of player that erases his faults. Um, I hope not because I have a lot of faith in the OKC Thunder going forward. I don't want them to ruin it. Um, but moving forward, just round two, whatever that team, whatever the Nuggets are facing, probably the Suns. We'll talk about them immediately. What an exciting series that is going to be, man. I can't predict what way that's going to go, but my God, am I excited for round two. Yeah, let's hop into the Suns and Clippers right now. I just want to start this by saying Russell Westbrook has been fucking incredible. Yeah. Um, I did not think this was ever going to be seen again from him. Um, he has been legitimately great. I didn't think I'd ever see it. I didn't think, and I, I'm shocked because Kawhi has had injuries. We knew that Paul George was going to be out this entire series and someone needed to step up. And I just kind of laughed at the notion of it being Westbrook. He is averaging 26 points per game on 46% from the floor, 41% from three, and 88% from the free throw line with seven rebounds and seven assists and 3.4 stocks per game. It's about as good as you could ever have expected Russell Westbrook. And I think he's just surpassing any expectation anyone had for him. So I need to give him his flowers because of, you know, I'm, I'm a notorious Russ hater, but this has been wildly impressive to me. Russell Westbrook is the only thing keeping this a series. Yeah. He's really the only thing keeping this competitive. I'm, I'm so impressed. I'm so happy with, with, with what Russ is doing for the Clippers. The way he was playing on the Lakers, you would have thought this man belonged in China. Um, You know, he just didn't fit the team. He didn't fit what they were trying to do. Every minute he was out there, he was not where he was supposed to be. He was not being utilized right. 
having him and the bench guys and Russell Westbrook just creates and explodes to the hoop. He's still bricking layups. He's still doing a lot of the rust things, but he's being great and he's impacting winning in a big way. And he's just bringing energy that is hard to find from anybody in the NBA. As much as Russell Westbrook may have his issues, there's really a few people that you can talk about that play with as much intensity as Russell Westbrook. He is a one of a kind player. And the fact that he's shooting 41% from three, the fact that he's been such a monster in this series I love it, man. I'm not a Russell Westbrook fan, but you can't not love what we're seeing from him. I completely agree. I've never been a Russell Westbrook fan, but it honestly genuinely makes me happy to see him play. Because I do think, I mentioned it earlier in the year, the Russ hate started to get a little weird at some point. Like it started to be like, all right, we know the guy sucks. Like, why do we have to talk about it every single morning or like every single night, right? Um, and it kind of just got super weird and toxic with the Lakers. He comes to the Clippers. I got to see him play live. The fans fucking go crazy for this guy. The organization loves him. The coach loves him. Kawhi and Paul George have said nothing but positive things about him. And he comes and does this and backs it up completely. Like, I think that's really fucking cool that in a single year's time, he can go from literally the most hated player in the NBA to being the best player on a playoff team right now because Kawhi's been hurt. We can talk about it. Kawhi, when he was playing, was the best player in the playoffs and it wasn't close. And then game three, mysteriously, he decided, you know, need to take a rest. And then we find out he has a knee injury and he missed game four as well. Um, but when Kawhi played, he averaged 35 points on 55% from the floor and 60% from three, 88 from the free throw line to go along with six rebounds and six assists with two steals a game. No one else is doing that in the league. That is Kawhi and Kawhi only. He was the best player in the fucking league when he was playing. And then boom, knee soreness. And this is just Kawhi's career, honestly. And it made me think about it. Like I was talking to one of our TikTok friends about this. Remy, shout out Remy. If Kawhi didn't have like the worst knees in NBA history, this is like a top 15 guy. Like, I just don't know how else to say it. Like, this is a guy that we would put right up there with Kevin Durant and right up there with Steph Curry in the all-time players. But this weird shit makes him a top 35 or top 40 guy of all time. And it's just, it's so disheartening because after those first two games, I really thought LA had a really good chance to win the series. And now they're down 3-1. Kawhi is coming back for game five, which is great. Um, but it feels like it might be a little too late to turn us around. It's definitely a little too late in my eyes. Kawhi Leonard is so interesting. Um, as someone who's not, who's just a little more impartial, Kawhi's your guy, but I, yeah, I love watching him. I love watching him when he's healthy, when he is playing, there isn't a single question mark about any aspect of his game. He's a great passer, rebounder, great defender still, even with the knees that he has, and he's going to score efficiently from every single spot on the floor the only question with Kawhi Leonard is how many games do we get to watch him play um and it's so weird for him he could be an all-time great man I'm getting two finals MVPs on two different teams the way that he led Toronto in that playoff run some of the best shit I've ever seen he really is arguably the best guy in the league when the playoff starts and he's healthy um but he's just not healthy 
And it sucks that we're in the twilight stages of his career and he's not going to get more healthy. It's not like we're going to see more games from him, more minutes from him in the future. We've seen the bulk of what we're seeing from Kawhi in his career. Um, Game five, I think he'll still play great, but it just sucks knowing that like his ceiling as a player, as an all-time ranked player is forever capped by his inability to stay healthy. Not a single aspect of his basketball game, but just his ability to stay healthy. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we go back to our preseason picks, I chose the Clippers to win the championship. Um, And that was based off of, hey, Kawhi Leonard, is when he's playing, he's the best fucking player. Like, seriously. And I know it sounds silly, but how do you watch those first two games of the postseason and think anyone is better than that guy? It's just hard to actually think that and believe it. Like, you can say it, but to believe it, you're tripping. Like, he was the best player in the postseason, wasn't a close second. And when that guy is healthy and you have Paul George next to him, who's a borderline all NBA player every year, that's a fucking dominant team. But guess what? Both of these guys are crazy injury prone. Like Paul George is just as injury prone as Kawhi Leonard. Both of these guys miss games all the fucking time. It's it's, there. This Clippers team is going to be one of those hypotheticals. I think moving down the moving down the line, when we think about teams that could have been great but weren't, that's kind of what this team strikes me as. Because if they were together, I mean, I think they dust the Suns and they, you know, they I think I would choose them to beat the Nuggets and go to the finals. And it's just it's just sad, man. It's just sad. You think back to that team up. You think back to the when it all started, when Anthony Davis and LeBron teamed up and when Paul George and Kawhi teamed up. Anthony Davis has played more games for the Lakers than Kawhi or Paul George have played for the Clippers. Yeah. And we rat on Anthony Davis. We shit on him constantly for being street clothes, for not being able to stay healthy. Um, And these guys haven't played as many games as him. Um, It sucks, man. And it's always going to suck. And I hope that they run it back. And I hope that I can just watch them healthy next year. But like we do this every single year. year. Um, moving on to the Phoenix Sun side, is it fair to say I'm a little bit disappointed? Is it fair to say I expected a little bit more from Kevin Durant and from Chris Paul and from DeAndre Ayton? Devin Booker's been sensational, but that's how I'm feeling right now. I completely agree with you. I, I think it's funny that we can come away from a series where they're up 3-1 and feel disappointed, but I'm with you. Um, Kevin Durant, you know, his stats are outstanding. Yeah. 28 game, 52 from the floor, 39 from three, 95 from the line. It's about as good as you can get. Yes. But it does feel like he's playing second fiddle, which I don't think is why they traded for him, right? They wanted Devin Booker to be second fiddle, and you have a top three player probably in KD just cooking people. It hasn't been that way. Booker and KD are playing 43 minutes a game, people. That is not good moving forward. And Chris Paul has been a bum. Um, He barely gets to the paint. And DeAndre Ayton, me and you have talked about it, Every time we watch him, we find a way to want more from him. Um, and it's that has continued into this series. So, yeah, I, I think it's totally fair. And the bench for the Suns is fucking atrocious. I think the three worst benches in the postseason right now are the Cavs, the Nuggets, and the Suns. And they have lived up to that. I mean, Torrey Craig has pulled out great performances. But then you have guys like Josh Okogie, Jacques Landau, Bismack Biombo, Damian Lee, Landry Shamit, all being horrible non-existent if they're out there they're losing players or they're not helping you um i'm with you man i'm a little disappointed in the suns kevin durant his numbers are phenomenal 28 points a game on unbelievable efficiency but he's only taking two more shots a game than chris paul 
Uh, and Chris Paul's 75 years old. He's <laughs> like Kevin Durant should be taking 20 something shots a game. It's never yeah. been his style. He always wants to be the guy that plays within the team's offense, but you brought him onto the team to shoot. Um, defensively, he's been great. Offensively, he's been great. It's not like he's doing anything wrong. I just want more. DeAndre Ayton, again, I just want more. You can put up more than 15 points a game, man. You really can. He's seven foot tall, a freak athlete, got great footwork, great defensive awareness. There were moments when the Suns made it to the finals where we were seriously saying, is DeAndre Ayton like arguably the third best center in basketball when the playoffs start? Um, And those are, it's a joke to say that now. He's got that potential in him. He's had that potential in him, but he just never reaches those expectations. And I don't know what it is, man. I don't know what's holding him back. Just mindset. That's what it is. There's not a lot of, it's funny. Like it's cliche. He doesn't have that dog in him. Right. It's like, it's it's funny but it's true he doesn't um he's very comfortable scoring 15 and grabbing 10 boards and that being it um you know Andrew Wiggins used to be that way now Wiggins like impacts the game every fucking night now DeAndre Ayton for me is the guy that you're just like all right the talent's there the talent's crazy he just doesn't like to use it and that's gonna forever be frustrating for us um, because I, I think it's both safe to say that we were rooting for the guy when Phoenix made that run. I think we were both very impressed. Absolutely. The uh, way he guarded Nikola Jokic was so impressive. Yeah. And you took that in the highest regard because of your fandom for Jokic. When Jokic comes out and says, yeah, this is the hardest guy I have to play against. That means something, right? right. Like that means something for sure. But I think what I've learned from this series is Devin Booker is by far and away the best shooting guard in the league. Uh, Donovan Mitchell, Jalen Brown. They're not in the conversation with this guy, in my opinion. Uh, Others can have that argument. I'm not going to argue about it. Booker is fucking phenomenal. Um, And I just don't know how you stop him because he could get to the rack. He could get to the free throw line. Great three-point shooter, mid-range shooter, probably one of the best in the league, like only behind Kevin Durant. He's up there, right? Kawhi, Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, DeMar DeRozan. Those are the four guys that cook from that area. He's just impossible to stop. And I I just think, you know, defensively, I texted you about this. Like, I never thought I would see the effort and impact that he's had defensively in this series. I never thought he had that one game where he was borderline a five by five, where he almost had five blocks and five steals. I was like, this is fucking Devin Booker doing this. Um, But he, in my mind, has kind of just cemented himself as the premier shooting guard in the league. He wants it, man. He really, really wants it. He plays his ass off at all times. To see the defensive growth from him, it's just wonderful, man. We saw who this guy was in his first couple of years in the league. A lot of people compare, you know, Jalen Green, what he is now, to what Devin Booker was. Just a guy chucking on a team that didn't matter. And to see him grow into a guy that's outplaying Kevin Durant in the playoffs, it's wonderful. It's amazing. And props to Devin Booker. He's got to be the best shooting guard in basketball. Um, The only guy that rivals him, I don't know if we call SGA a point guard or a shooting guard. Um, He might be a point guard. If you're not calling him a shooting guard, it's Devin Booker. 35 points a game on the efficiency he's doing. The three-point shot, he hasn't always been a good three-point shooter. Not to this extent. And honestly, we didn't even really talk about SGA in the play-in, but like the playoff whistle is completely different from the regular season whistle. And we saw this with James Harden his entire career. James Harden's averaging 14 free throws a game in the regular season. He goes to the playoff. He only averages six free throws a game. He's not the same player. We saw that with SGA. 
We saw it happen. He sucked when he didn't get the foul call. Devin Booker, I don't have to worry about that. He's going to hit the threes. He's going to hit mid-range. He's going to get to the paint. Fouls or no fouls, he's going to dominate the fucking game. Um, Devin Booker is that guy. And you're right. Like, a lot of people get annoyed by him. He, he has a little chip on him, a little annoying. It's kind of a chip off CP3's block. Yeah. But honestly, dude, you can feel his passion for the game. He fucking wants the title. And I I fuck with guys who play that hard and who want it that bad. So I, I'm a Booker fan. Yeah, man. There's a lot of the greatest in the NBA that do a lot of whining. Uh, LeBron has done it for years in his career. Nikola Jokic whines to a level that nobody else in the NBA whines to. Um, Luka Doncic whines. Yeah. Some, the, the greatest of the great do it. And as annoyed as you can be with that, it doesn't take away from who Devin Booker has been as a player, especially in these playoffs. Um, yeah. He's been incredible. But I'm feeling like, I mean, just the fact that the Clippers took game one was a big surprise for me. Kawhi and Russell Westbrook were really just the guys propelling them, carrying them into that win. But it felt like this should be just a routing from the Suns. It felt like they should be playing a lot better as a team. Not a routing, but you like, I don't know. It's weird where we are in this series. They're winning the games, but by slim margins and like, honestly, are we sure the Suns outplayed them in their last game? The exactly. Suns, 46 free throws compared to 23. They literally doubled up the Clippers. And it was a joke, too. Like, some of the tic-tac fouls that the Suns got to shoot free throws for were kind of disgusting. And the take I, foul on Russ that wasn't called? Right. So, I think the series should probably be 2-2. None of the Suns' wins have felt really inspiring to me. It feels like they're just getting over the hump with a team that's missing their two best players. Um, so I think maybe that's why we have the feeling we do, where it's just like they're winning games, but we're not super confident in it. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to monitor them moving forward. But let's move on to Golden State Sacramento. This has been one of our favorite series um, to watch, to talk about. I had Golden State in six. You had the Kings in seven? Six. Six. Kings in okay. six. Well, it's tied up. Two-two. Um, Kings won their games at home. The Warriors won their games at home. What is something that has stood out to you in this series? De'Aaron Fox is incredible. De'Aaron Fox is averaging 32, six and seven in his very first playoff series after all of the horrendous play that the Kings have been through in his career. That is what stands out to me the most. Game four absolutely was a winnable game for the Kings. And what you're seeing is what we saw in the finals with the Warriors, the difference in experience matters. Sacramento Kings in the last two minutes of the fourth quarter of game four threw away maybe four possessions just because they're trying to move too fast and guys aren't really thinking because the pressure's on them. Uh, Malik Monk had a drive he didn't have to make. They had a couple of careless turnovers just because guys are a little bit rattled. Um, And you just don't see that they're calm, cool, and collected over on the Warriors' end. Um, If it was a 3-1 series, if the Kings won that game, hit that last shot, I would have been had the most confidence in the world for the Kings in the rest of this series. Now I don't feel that way. Yeah, I I feel very good about Warriors in six um, after game four. Um, I just Something that's been catching my eye with the Kings is absolutely De'Aaron Fox being a pimp, but Malik Monk, Sabonis, and Herder have all been ass. Like Sabonis is basically at a one to one assist to turnover ratio. This is, we're talking about one of the better playmaking bigs in the entire league. 
basically going assist for turnover in a playoff series, disgusting. He's shooting 48% from the floor. This is a guy that shot close to 60 in the regular season. Mm-hmm. I just think Draymond is the best defender in the league. I really do. And it's so funny because during the regular season, we seem to forget about him. Oh, we want to give Jaron Jackson Jr., who's getting fucking destroyed by Anthony Davis. We'll talk about that in a second. Or Brooke Lopez, the award, right? It's fucking Draymond Green. It's like he is the guy. When the playoffs start, if I could choose any defender, it's him. He's got crazy active hands, great at protecting the rim just breaking up any passing lanes, communication. He is the gold standard for all of that shit. And I think he is just destroying Sabonis right now. It's He's by far winning the matchup, in my opinion. Malik Monk, 39% from the floor, right? Kevin Herter, 38% from the floor, 14% from three. And I heard Zach Lowe talk about this the other day, and I completely agree. And I, I noticed this as well, like, the Kings have noticed how bad Herder's playing. So they've stopped running action at the three-point line. They're trying to get him open looks at the free throw line now because they're just like, maybe if we move him closer to the basket, he can make it. And it's still not working. Like De'Aaron Fox has this team on his back right now because other guys aren't stepping up in the way I maybe thought they would. You're exactly right, dude. Uh, Keegan Murray had an excellent game four. Really yep. loved what I saw from him in game four. But besides that, he's been a no-show. Malik Monk, 32 points in game one. Attacked downhill beautifully all game. Since then, he's been a no-show. De'Aaron Fox is just amazing, man. I didn't expect 32 points a game from him at any point in a playoff series. Against the Warriors? No way. Um, The way that he's been able to do that while also doing his best to chase around Steph Curry. Because he's the guy who's doing it. Davion Mitchell and Fox are the guys chasing him around everywhere. Um, you saw some lapses, Steph Curry, the way that he's able to create even eight inches of space for himself and get a three point shot off. He's the best in the NBA. He's the best to maybe ever do it. Um, there are some moments where it's clutch time in the fourth quarter and Steph Curry gets a single step on Fox and it's over and he's got the wide open three and he canned it. Um, it really feels like this whole series has just been cross my fingers and hope that Steph Curry and Clay Thompson can shoot us into victories. And they've won two games with that strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Curry's kind of in fuck you mode right now after a really bad game three, not really bad, but just like three for 13 from three from Steph. That's an abnormal, like that's not going to happen a lot. Yeah. After that, he goes 36 points, six for 12 from three, and then 32 points, five for 11 from three. That's what you expect when you think of Steph Curry. And when he plays that way, they're just really hard to beat. You mentioned Clay Thompson, like he hasn't been awesome all year long, but he had 26 points on four and nine from three in game four, right? Like they're slowly figuring it out. And actually Jordan Poole being somewhat decent is big for them. Like it, it means so much to them in game four, 22 points, eight for 15. Like they needed that performance or they lose the game. And it's just, it feels like they're starting to maybe figure out a formula. Obviously you mentioned through our text chain, right? Like, the road warriors are a thing we need to talk about. They're fucking horrible on the road. They lost both games on the road. If they can go to Sacramento and steal one, that's a huge, huge sign that the warriors are figuring things out. Yeah. And I don't expect them to Um, Jordan Poole had a great game four, but if you're saying he's been good this series, I would fight you 
you know, pretty hard on that. Yeah. Um, he scares me going forward. Jordan Poole is a player. The money you spent on him scares me a little bit going forward. Um, I don't know what to expect from game five. The road warriors, the difference between the way the warriors play at home versus on the road, just in this series has been night and day. Um, the role players play better at home for whatever reason, the defense plays a lot better at home. There's just so many mistakes that you don't expect from the Golden State Warriors that you saw in those first two games. Um, and then you watch them in games three and four, and there was none of it. It's so strange the way that works. I wanted to ask you, it's a thing I've seen discussed a lot when it comes to Steph Curry, especially given the way that game four ended. Uh, Steph Curry called a timeout when there was no timeout and then horribly missed a floater. Steph Curry's clutch numbers are not great. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think of Steph Curry as a guy who is clutch late in game? Or do you really, like, what do those stats mean to you? It's funny because he kind of seems like he had, like, the Celtics series last year in the finals, it was just ridiculous, but it wasn't clutch shit. Like, it wasn't in the last five minutes of the game, but the games were huge, right? Because Boston was up, and he that game four, he was like, get the fuck out of my face. And then in game six, in the first quarter, he's pointing to his ring finger. So it feels like he has that fuck you, I'm going to finish you mentality. Yeah. But it's strange because the numbers in the last five minutes are not great. So it's like, the go back to the 2016 finals, he absolutely melted down, throwing that behind the back pass into the stands to basically just end it. Um, yeah, it's, re it's really, really strange. Um, I do think he has that the dog in him, I guess. <laughs> but it's just in the last five minutes, he does kind of disappear or not disappear, but it's just like, he's not as great as his usual self. That's exactly what it is. Cause in that warrior Celtic series, those buckets were clutch. They weren't in the last five minutes of the game, but they were momentum shifters. Almost yeah. every single one of them. Yes. Um, the Celtics were making a run and Steph Curry steps up with a 32 foot fuck you three and <laughs> silences their run. That is clutch. But you're right. In the last couple minutes, the fourth quarter, we don't see that level from Steph Curry. If you go back and look, I'm not going to say the numbers out of my ass, but somebody has put them on uh, Twitter. Steph Curry's numbers in the last two minutes of the game and his percentages are not great. They're not Steph Curry level. Um, it was weird to see him collapse in the last minute there of that game. And if that ended up in a loss for the Warriors, he would have got in a world of shit for that. Yeah, for sure. But if we go back through Steph's career, like there's been so many moments where he has shown up in the big time, but it is, yeah, it's just just a weird, quirky thing with him. I do want to shout out a role player for the Warriors that maybe had one of the funniest great games I've seen in a while. Kavon Looney. Kavon Looney had four points with 20 rebounds and nine assists to only two turnovers in game three. He was the game changer. He beat Sabonis on the glass, which is very difficult to do. And he stayed out of foul trouble. He played 31 minutes, only committed one foul. And he just felt like he had a momentous impact on the game with only scoring four points. Um, you're right. If for whatever reason, role players play better at home. And he is the epitome of that because he had a great game four as well. Eight points, 14 boards, six assists, only two turnovers. Like, very clean basketball from Kevon Looney, and he's very important to what they do. We saw in the finals last year and their run last year, like when he's playing, they play very well. And when he sits, their defense struggles. 
Um, he's a very underrated player. Cool to see him really have a standout performance in the postseason. He's probably in that top tier of greatest role players in basketball. He's um, up there. He's really up there, man. The last guy to put up 20 rebounds in a playoff game was Kevon Looney last year. Um, people just don't do it like he does, man. He's just a great rebounder in the playoffs. He plays with incredible energy. Um, it's just hard to not love Kevon Looney. He's just such a perfect role player for the team. Um, Draymond Green came off the bench in game four. You did. And it was good for the team. And I kind of expect them to do that going forward. They played great in game three without him. Uh, that was an interesting thing to see because Draymond Green feels like the guy that makes their defense work. It's the guy, he's the guy that holds them all together. And yeah. since stomping on Sabonis's rib cage and being suspended for a game, they're fine leaving him on the bench and leaving his antics out of the game. Also, I do want to say that was ridiculous. He got suspended. That was so dumb. They suspended uh, but- him because he's Draymond Green and he's a dirty player and not because that was the worst thing they've ever seen yeah yeah like it was it was stupid risky as hell too like to to suspend a player of that magnitude of the best team over the last decade in a postseason series was ballsy from the league uh just because that just seems so dumb to like kind of sabotage one of your greatest earners over the last decade just seems weird especially when the offense to me looked pretty I mean, what the fuck was he supposed to do? Like, I would have stomped Sabonis out as well. If he was grabbing my shit when I was trying to get back on defense, like, I would have just stomped him out. Um, so, I don't know. I'm I'm with Draymond on that. But for him to come back and just say, like, I'm cool coming off the bench, he really is. Like, say what you want. He is a team player. He Yes, he punched a teammate in the face. Yes, he stomped out Sabonis's ribs. But he wants to win, man. I'll give him that. He really does. What this series should tell you, if you didn't already know it, is if you're thinking about where should Draymond Green go uh, in the offseason, could he go to the Pistons? Could he be a difference maker over there? No. Draymond Green does not give a fuck about basketball unless it's the playoffs. And if you're putting him on Detroit to play meaningless games, no, he's not going to care. Draymond Green steps up when it matters in situations like this. But even still, man, I'm struggling to be like, this is a guy I need. If we're the Warriors, we got to keep him or else our dynasty dies. Like Draymond Green's not that important in my eyes. I could not disagree more. I think, you know, the whole system of like moving off ball, it's Draymond. It's not Curry. Like, yes, Curry runs off ball. That's his thing. Who finds him? Who gets him open looks? Who's setting screens for him out on the perimeter? Who's running the break? It's not Curry. It's fucking Draymond. Like, this system works because of him. I'm sure they'll find a variation of it or a modification of it to kind of keep some of the things they've done great over the last decade. But, I mean, his switchable defense, him being able to pass the ball, run the offense at his size while having the defensive impact, like, he's a massive part of this dynasty. And he will go down as underrated because he scores seven points a game. And that's fine. I get it. But I just – it's – gonna be weird because he's not gonna be a warrior i don't think i really don't because they paid jordan Poole, they can't afford him um it'll be interesting to see where he goes and what he does moving forward with his career because i think he's incredibly valuable but it's just like i think he complimented curry and clay so much it'll be weird to see him surrounded by other guys i think he's valuable but i think he's also probably one of the top three dirtiest players in the nba 
Um, and I don't know that I want that if I'm a team trying to be something. Um, that's kind of why I'm against Dylan Brooks as a player, even though the defense is nice, man. I just don't want that. I don't want that guy around my team. Um, but I mean, they won't need him to win this series. That's what they showed. They won game three pretty comfortably without him. Um, I don't know what they look like back in Sacramento for game five. It's going to be a massive tell on whether or not the Warriors can win this series or not is how do they look? Even if they lose game five, if they look competent, they're winning this series. Yeah, and both of us are sticking up to our picks. We, You have Kings in six still. I have Warriors in six still. This has been an awesome series. Super, super fun to watch. Um, let's move on to the last one, Memphis and Lakers. Uh, this one's weird. This one's very strange. Uh, Lakers took game one by just a collection of talent. We talked about it on our last podcast, Austin Reeves stepping up. Game two, super weird, super annoying for me as someone who actually wants to see the Lakers succeed. Anthony Davis, complete no-show, complete no-show, disappeared. Even though LeBron ended up with 28 points, it felt like he disappeared as well. Like, I didn't even feel him playing. Uh, D'Angelo Russell, classic, horrible game. Um, Xavier Tillman was the best Grizzly in that game, and they won. When that is a statement I can say, that is weird. Uh, but then the Lakers come out in game three and fucking punk the Grizzlies. The, the end score does not tell the story of this game. It was so lopsided that the Lakers basically just walked up and down the court, let the Grizzlies get back in it, then they would stop them again, and then let the Grizzlies get back in it. Anthony Davis, 31 points and 17 rebounds to go along with five stocks. Jaron Jackson, go fuck yourself, is what I have to say. Anthony Davis, one, is better at defense than him, and his two is fucking exposing him as a defender. Um, Anthony, I just, Anthony Davis is one of those guys. We talk about it on the podcast four out of every five games. He looks like a top five player. And then that fifth game, he looks like a Joe Schmo, some yeah. random guy out there. And that's what he showed us in this series. Game one, excellent game one. He had one of the greatest defensive performances I've seen this year. Game two disappears. Game three absolutely dominates. He's a weird guy, but the Lakers seem to be playing pretty well. Um, I just like the way the Lakers are playing, man. Anthony Davis's floor is DeAndre Ayton. <laughs> yeah. Um, what we yeah. expect, what we see from DeAndre Ayton underperforming all the time. But at his ceiling, he's a top three player um, because of the two-way dominance that he shows. He's a fucking freak, man, on both sides of the ball. And he's an excellent rebounder, one of the best rebounders in basketball. Um, he's a guy like Kawhi that just... You can't get an act, an actual accurate ranking of him because he doesn't play enough basketball. The difference between like what he could be if he stayed healthy, like he could win MVPs if he was healthy for 65, 70 games. Um, he's so good at basketball. This was a sick game three from the Lakers. Yeah. I think this is the first time they've been in front of their home crowd for the playoffs since LeBron's been a Laker. Yeah. Um, and you could hear it in the audience, man. The yeah. crowd was into it. The crowd was awesome. And I, it's how do you win? How do you win in LA in a playoff game if you're not the Lakers? How do you possibly beat the Lakers? I don't really get it. I don't know how. Um, and it's funny because now I live here, right? I'm in Los Angeles as we speak. And like a lot of people, when they think of Los Angeles, glitz, glam, you know, fancy, wealthy, rich, whatever. Lakers fans are so fucking dedicated to this basketball team. And it's all anyone talks about. Every street I walk down here, 
There's a mural of Kobe, Magic, LeBron. There's literally murals all over the city of Lakers talent. Um, and it, it's it's how much they love the team. Every bus that passes by me on the neon sign, go Lakers, go Lake. Like, it's fucking crazy. This, this city loves their basketball. And that home crowd is insane. Like, they care so much. It's an underrated place to have to play. Like, it's one of the more hostile environments you have to enter. I think, you know, people recognize, you know, the Garden in Boston, the Garden in New York, obviously. Sacramento has gotten a lot of credit this year. Oracle's always a t- or Oracle was a really tough place to set, uh, play. Um, Crypto.com Stadium, even though it has a horrible name, is a really, really, really hard place to play. So, yeah, I do want to give some credit to John Morant quickly. He's just sneaky, one of the better playoff performers in the entire league. Literally since he came into the league, he's been dropping 40 pieces on playoff teams. Like, he dropped 45 on Rudy Gobert's head as a sophomore uh, in the league. Like, he's just been doing this, and it goes underappreciated, I feel like. Obviously, this came in a loss where they got decimated, but he was the only thing going right for the Grizzlies. 45 and 13 with three turnovers. That's a great game. LeBron said it after the fact. Man's good. Man's very good at basketball. Ja is awesome. Um, Even though they're the two seed, man, I've never been that high on the Grizzlies. Never felt like this was going to be a comfortable win for them, especially without Steven Adams. Jaron mm-hmm. Jackson Jr., as much damage as he can do in the regular season um, over the course of a full season as a defender, if you put him up against Anthony Davis and LeBron James over and over and over again, yeah. there's no nothing he can do, man. There isn't a player. Like, maybe Giannis is the guy I would want going up against Anthony Davis and LeBron game after game, but he's probably the only guy that I'm pretty comfortable in that position. Jaron Jackson Jr., there's really nothing he could have done. As good as of, of a defender as he is, Anthony Davis and LeBron are monsters in the paint. They're cooking his shit. They're yeah. cooking it. And, and just vice versa, too, like, Anthony Davis, what he's been doing on defense is just ridiculous. He's averaging five blocks a game. That doesn't make sense. And he's averaging almost two steals a game as well. Like he is just taken what Jaron Jackson Jr. has done in the regular season and made it look a little bit silly that he just won defensive player of the year. And that's what I said last podcast. Like Anthony Davis and Draymond are the best defenders in the league. They are. It's just, I don't know if it's, it's them and Giannis. Those are the three guys. I don't know how to rank them, but those are the three. And every single time we enter the postseason, they remind us of that. Yeah. And and then guys like Brooke Lopez and Jaron Jackson don't really seem that special all of a sudden. Um, it's just, yeah, a- Anthony Davis, what an incredible player. I do want to talk about LeBron quickly before you like wrap up this, this uh, podcast. LeBron's been kind of underwhelming to me. Very similar feeling that I have with the Phoenix Suns with LeBron is like, I'm kind of waiting for the LeBron fuck you game. And it just hasn't happened. Like, you know, the numbers look great, but he kind of just doesn't feel like he's taking over like we've seen in the past. And maybe that's unfair of me to expect because of his age. And, you know, he was hurt just a few weeks before the playoffs started. Um, But it doesn't feel like he's really had that game where he just grabs the Grizzlies by the throat and takes it, like just finishes them. He has not had that game yet. Um, And maybe that game's coming. He's shooting 51% from the field, 25 points a game. He's been great so far. Um, But he hasn't had like a big 30-something point game where he just dominates the whole time. And he hasn't needed it. We saw in that game one, 
he let Austin Reeves and D'Angelo Russell cook, let them take the ball and handle, and he was legitimately just a floor spacer out there. Um, we've seen him be very okay with, if my team is going to win this for me, I will let them. Um, he's 38 years old. He's not at the point where he needs to put this entire team on his back. And it seems like they're able to get wins without him in this series, without him being some monster. Um, he's still being good, obviously, but in the next series, I think is when we see LeBron really, really go into like, fuck you playoff mode. Yeah. And I think, seeing the way he's playing does actually have me questioning his health a little bit. That's fair. Usually, usually I, I'm like, if you're out there, play and play well. Um, And I'm going to keep that same energy, but he says he's healthy and I'm not sure he, he's telling the truth. Because I think that's fair, man. In that game too, that just really confused me. John Morant's not playing. The Grizzlies have their best player out. Xavier Tillman is the best player on the Grizzlies and they win like that's a game where LeBron James is playing in that's a game that he says no fuck you I'm winning this game like and it, it just didn't happen I was waiting for it and it never happened um I, I don't know if I'm I don't know I don't know it's just weird but I'm expecting great things from him moving forward especially in the later series like you mentioned like I think he is going to be a terror whether he faces the Warriors or the Kings yeah, man, I hope he can wrap this series up quickly and get a little bit of rest because I'm a believer that LeBron's not fully healthy. Um, and I think he came back early because the Lakers needed wins and they needed him to be on that floor. And he needs some time off, man. I I don't know how I feel. It's weird seeing all the injuries going around at the start of this playoff series. I do not want LeBron to join that list um, I would rather if he has to miss a game, but stay healthy and stay in this series. But ideally they wrap this series up in five and LeBron gets a couple days rest. Um, it, do you think Lakers in five is reasonable from what we're seeing? I do. I do. I'm going to stick with Lakers in six just because of my respect for John Morant. Um, but the Lakers just feel like the better team. I think Jaron Jackson is a little fraudulent as a player. Dylan Brooks has been atrocious, like horrible. Yeah. Um, and Desmond Bain, I don't really even see, like if I don't know how well you're playing, you're probably not playing that great. Yeah, Desmond Bain, 19 points on 38% from the floor and 30% from three. Yeah. That's fucking horrible. Those are um, Dylan Brooks numbers right there. Those are Dylan Brooks numbers. And how long, I think we've been talking about this on the podcast since my junior year of college. The fucking Grizzlies need to take their B-plus talent and move it somewhere else. And I feel like now, with the reputation Dylan Brooks has, he's no longer a B-plus player. People view him as a C-minus player, um, which I think is completely fair. He's an unbelievable defender, but he has an attitude and he shoots the ball too much. And, you know, does Desmond Bain performing this way keep his stock as high as it was previously? Absolutely not. So, I mean, they got to figure out something soon. I do think it's okay for them to package their talent. Um, I don't know. But yeah, Lakers in five seems reasonable. Lakers in six is probably what I'd lean. The issue that I think they've run into at this point is all of their young guys are now known entities. We know exactly what they're good and bad at. We know exactly where they're growing. Um, Brandon Clark and Steven Adams missing this series means something. Brandon Clark's a great young player, but yeah. we know exactly who Dylan Brooks is. We know exactly who Tyus Jones is a great backup and you want to keep him. Yeah. But like 
we looked at, you know, Santi Aldama, John Conchar, Brandon Clark, Xavier Tillman, David Roddy. These are all young guys getting lots of minutes, but they're not like you can package three of them together and get a star. Uh, we used to think that maybe, you know, these young guys, the potential that they all have, if you sent them out plus a pick or two, you could bring back an all-star. I don't yeah. feel that way anymore. But now that you have Ja and Jaron Jackson Jr. as your potential top two best players, yeah. you do need to round out the role players in a new way. You need more shooters. I think that's the biggest thing that the Grizzlies need is more shooters because their consistency from deep has just never been there. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I remember both of us were kind of banging the table at the trade deadline that they should go after OG Ananobi or Mikhail Bridges. Yes. Uh, you know, this was before, obviously, the Kevin Durant trade was made and Mikhail gets moved. Um, but me and you were looking at the clock as the time was ticking down at the trade deadline being like, OG needs to be moved. And I thought one of the best places for him to go was the Grizzlies. You have a defensive player, the cal- depend- uh, defensive player of the year caliber wing next to the defensive player of the year. That is just going to be a really, really hard team to score against. And he provides more consistency than Dylan Brooks. Yes. I just thought it was kind of like a no-brainer. They elected not to. Um, it, and I don't know, what is this team now with OG Ananobi? Much better, in my opinion. Much better. Um, but it's just one of those things where we're going to have to see a change eventually. They can't just keep running. They they remind me so much of the Jazz. Yes. The Rudy Bear Donovan Mitchell Jazz. And I think you actually made that comparison to me a few weeks ago and you nailed it. Like they are an awesome regular season team with an unbelievable guard and an unbelievable rim protector. And that's kind of it. And then you, they go into the postseason and they get outmatched. It's time to switch things up because they have a great coach, a great star, a great defender time to fill things out. Yeah. And they had a great defense this year. Their defense really didn't struggle. It was just, they couldn't find shooting. You know, Desmond Bain missed a lot of games and that was big. John Morant and Dylan Brooks can't shoot. Jaron Jackson Jr. has got his moments, but he's not a guy you want being a high volume three point shooter. He does a lot of good work inside. Um, So they have some identity issues is what I think the Grizzlies are dealing with right now. The top end talent is good enough to make them a two seed in the regular season. They're really good at playing as a unit and winning games, no matter what gets subbed in and out of the lineup. John Morant misses games. Desmond Bain misses games. They got guys that they can just sub in and recreate a lot of their production. But when the playoffs come, none of that matters because you need that top end production. You need those guys who can go out and win you games. And John Morant can do it single-handedly, but that's really all you got right now. Desmond Bain's not carrying the kind of load that you wanted him to. Yeah, everyone else is too inconsistent. And I'm pretty sure it's extension time for Desmond Bain. So it's time to make a decision on him. Dylan Brooks, same thing. He's becoming an unrestricted free agent this summer. Like they have to make important decisions this upcoming summer. And it'll be interesting to see how this playoff series informs that because I think we both have the Grizzlies losing in the first round. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting, man. But just a quick uh, side note related to that Desmond yeah. Bain, just as like a, holy shit, this guy's underrated and underpaid. He's yeah. got a team option next year for $3.8 million. Yeah. And that's how much he's getting paid next year. And then after that, you got to pay that man after the contract you've given him the rookie contract that he's dealt with. You got to pay that man. Yeah. He has far surpassed his value as the 29th pick taken in the first round of the draft a few years ago. Yeah. Um, but you know, that he's extension eligible this summer. So they need to decide, hey, are we going to give this guy, you know, 
$30 million a year for the next four. Like, is that a price they're comfortable paying? I have no idea, but that's the goal. Like the Pistons will pay that and not even think about it twice. There are going to be teams that are like, give us that dude. And they have to be comfortable either paying him or trading him. And I think, you know, sign and trade that motherfucker for an up, like a better player. I don't know. It just seems this, this is an interesting series. Cause like I said, it'll, it'll inform how they move forward as a franchise, but I, I don't know. The Grizzlies future is so interesting. Thinking about the decisions they've made the past two years in terms of who they bring to their team and who they draft. The fact that they made that home run swing for Zaire Williams and the hope that he would be some top tier guy. And he's really just been a guy. He has not been a top tier guy. He doesn't have that ceiling. He only played 37 regular season games this year after we saw him in the playoffs and we were pretty impressed by what we were seeing. Um, David Roddy, Jake LaRavia, not guys with high ceilings. Um, it seems like they're trying to keep homegrown talent and build around John Morant in a way that makes sense. But the guys that they're drafting just don't have the ceiling that they need to have. And and that's the issue. Because they're such a re- successful regular season team, they're selecting players in the top, no, in the 20s, right? Yeah. They're, they're selecting players in the 20s. That one pick was Zaire Williams. Like, who else were they supposed to draft at that spot? Like, Alperen Shengun, what does he do for them? You know what I mean? So it's like they just had to take a swing. It was a complete home run swing, like you mentioned. But they're not in the teens, or they're not in the top five getting to pick and choose great talent that fits around John Morant. They're stuck in the 20s. Yes. That's why I just say, package your fucking picks, move four of them, literally, tr- trade Desmond Bain or Dylan Brooks and four first round picks and try to get someone to your team that can actually make a difference. You know, it's funny when you think about that trade, they traded Zaire Williams, and Trey Murphy for Trey Murphy. They drafted Trey Murphy and they sent him to the Pels for Zaire Williams. At the time, it was a move that was fine. Um, thinking back on it now, you want that six, nine shooter, Trey Murphy. You would much rather have him on your team. Um, I didn't think it was a terrible idea to go for a home run swing, but It really feels, I'm just confused on how the Grizzlies become a contender from where they are now. I honestly, even though they're a two seed, even though they're a dominant regular season team, it feels like they have a ways to go before they're that level of team. I I think the best way is OG Ananobi. And I know he's not a needle mover like that. But like I mentioned, having two defensive player of the year caliber players on your team at the same time to kind of insulate your 6'3 guard who's skinny and doesn't play great defense, it just kind of feels like it's probably the best way to go, especially because there's not some huge name wing. I think they should have been in the Kevin Durant sweepstakes, but Kevin Durant wanted to go to Phoenix. He wasn't going to Memphis, right? So it's like, it just feels like they have to trade for a wing. And there's not a lot of guys out there. Hopefully they kind of dip their toes back into the OG conversation this summer. But as of right now, it kind of feels like they're stuck at a ceiling. Yeah. And they're going to have to make a decision. This is a, I think this is a first round loss. I don't see how the Grizzlies beat the Lakers. It just feels like they've been outmatched all series. Um, There's going to be an uncomfortable, uncomfortable conversation to be had about what do we do? Where do we go now? What do we do with Dylan Brooks? What do we do? Where, who do we get? Um, And I don't know where the Grizzlies go, but I know when you have John Morant on your team, you're comfortable. When you know that John Morant is this guy, he can win you playoff series on his own. And all you need is consistent role players. Like that's a great place to be in as a team. 
a lot of teams would trade their situations for the Memphis Grizzlies situation. Yeah. A lot of teams. But I don't know. We went over all of the playoff series so far. Um, you know, it's been a great playoff series so far. All of them have been fantastic pretty much other than Sixers Nets. But is there anything you want to say, anything you're looking forward to before we, you know, wrap this thing up here? I'm loving what I'm seeing, and man, I can't wait for the second round. I think the second round is going to be some of the most entertaining playoff basketball we've seen in a while because we have no idea who's coming out of these series. Suns Nuggets, I can't wait for that, man. That's going to be so much fun. Knicks Bucks is going to be a slugfest. Um, as fun as this first round has been, man, it just feels like we got even more great basketball coming. What a great playoffs that it's been so far. Yeah, it's it's been incredible. So much fun. All the games, really. And we've had some standout performances uh, across the league as well. So um, I think that's going to do it for this episode here. Um, thank you guys for listening. Uh, anything else, Ben? That'll do it. Thanks, everybody. Peace out.